Welcome to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. Well, good morning. Let me also welcome you to Monterey on this beautiful Sunday morning. Does not seem it's November given the kind of weather that we will experience today, but again, with West Texas, it is that roller coaster ride uh, day after day and week after week. We are honored by your presence today. We did not have all of the details when we printed the bulletin a couple of days ago, and so let me take just a moment and share details regarding the funeral arrangements for Terry Quigley. Uh, Those of you who may not be aware, uh, we lost our brother Terry Quigley early Thursday morning, unexpected, uh, some complications growing out of a uh, surgery he had on Monday of this past week. And so our love and blessings to his wife, Tricia, to their three children, Nick, Andrea, Landon, and the entire family. Uh, Visitation will be Thursday evening, uh, 6 to 8 p.m. at Lake Ridge Chapel, right across the street from Monterey. And then the funeral service is Friday morning at 11 o'clock here in our worship center. Uh, The Quigleys have been a part of the Monterey Church since 1985. If you've had the privilege of knowing that family, uh, you have been blessed, just an incredible family. If you did not have the privilege of knowing them, uh, you missed out. And I certainly encourage you to get to know uh, Tricia and the rest of the family in the days to come as well. Uh, Terry was one of those guys who served in many respects behind the scenes. And so for those of you sitting on my left, Uh, For the last several years, Terry has been one of those guys who would uh, set up our worship chairs in preparation for our time together on Sunday morning and was an incredible blessing in that way as well as in other uh, ways that he served this church. Uh, Let me invite you to join me and let's pray for the Quigley family as as we begin this morning. Uh, Father, above all today, we praise you for your goodness and your faithfulness in our lives We come, God, recognizing that life often has so many unexpected turns, and probably every one of us in this room can testify to moments in our lives, and we know that's been the case for uh, the Quigleys these last several days in Terry's unexpected death. Uh, God, we thank you for a life well lived. Uh, We celebrate the victory that is his, And yet we know that his family is grieving deeply. And so we pray an extra measure of your presence, your peace, your love to surround them in the days and weeks and months to come. And so we lift them into your hands this morning, God, in the name of Christ. Amen. We are continuing our series this morning from the Gospel of Mark a series that we have titled The Unsettling Messiah. Jesus, our Messiah, is indeed unsettling on so many different fronts. In the little video that you saw just a moment ago, uh, the question we posed at the outset of this series, what is unsettling about following Jesus to you? I was especially intrigued by the response, you have to sacrifice everything in order to serve Jesus, but he also had to sacrifice everything. I feel like I've said it every Sunday, but we began this series several weeks ago by exploring a key transition paragraph in Mark chapter 8, where Peter makes the confession to Jesus, you are the Messiah. 
this key transition paragraph that suddenly becomes very unsettling. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, the Gospel of Mark has been building to this moment for eight chapters, and then Jesus warned the disciples not to tell anyone. And it becomes even more unsettling. Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will suffer and die. Certainly not what the disciples anticipated with the Messiah. And then it gets even more unsettling as it relates to their commitment to Jesus. He says, if you're going to be my disciple, you must be willing to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me daily. The next story in the Gospel of Mark following those moments, that conversation, is the transfiguration where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up on a high mountain. And then immediately following the transfiguration, the story that we're going to look at today, story beginning at Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And as I read the story, let me invite you to reflect on your journey of faith, maybe even in very direct ways, where you find yourself today. And so hear the word of the Lord, beginning at Mark 9, verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, the nine disciples who were not with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you, obviously brought uh, his son to the disciples, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer, or as some manuscripts word it by prayer and fasting. I don't know what your initial take is on this text, but might I suggest there are several unsettling moments in this story. Again, we have just come out of chapter 8, 
where the words of Jesus to the disciples have unsettled them on several fronts. Yes, he is the Messiah, but don't, but don't tell anyone. We're headed to Jerusalem, by the way, where I'm going to suffer and die. And if these disciples are going to continue to follow Jesus, they must be willing to deny everything about themselves. Their agendas, their understanding of the Messiah, who he is, and maybe all of that plays into the unsettling moments in this story. Maybe especially for the nine disciples who were unable to drive out this impure spirit. And maybe it's important to stop for just a moment and set this in an overall context in the Gospel of Mark. Back in chapter 6, Jesus sent out the 12 disciples two by two. And as he sent them out, he gave them authority to cast out evil spirits. The concluding words of that particular paragraph are interesting. The text says, they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And yet in this story, the nine disciples were unable to drive out the impure spirit, leading Jesus to indict them for their lack of faith. In fact, you get the impression that Jesus is exasperated. He is frustrated with the disciples. His words had to be unsettling. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? As one of our creative team members put it when we were reflecting on this text a few weeks ago, Jesus had an attitude. Jesus had an attitude in this text. The implication is that these disciples should have been able to cast out the impure spirit. But their lack of faith, and as the last verse in the reading indicates, their lack of faith, evidently coupled with a lack of prayer, prevented them from doing so. Jesus will also make that same connection on other occasions in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, in just a couple of chapters, he'll talk about that deep connection between faith and prayer. Now, I'll confess very quickly that I don't have all of the answers to the questions that we might pose regarding the disciples and their lack of faith and its connection with prayer. In fact, I've got more questions than I do answers. What I do conclude, and I would invite you to hear me clearly, what I do conclude is that faith is hard. Faith is a journey even for these disciples who are experiencing extraordinary moments with Jesus every time they turn around. And so if you would permit me this morning, I'm going to step away from the disciples for a moment. And I want us to focus on the faith of the Father in this story. A Father who desperately wants Jesus or his disciples to heal his son. A father who pleads with Jesus, if you can do anything, heal my son. And when Jesus says, if you can, why all things are possible to the one who believes, the father responds. And what I think is one of the greatest confessions of faith in all of scripture. The father says, Lord, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. Help me in those moments when I struggle with my faith. Echoing the fact again that I think faith is a journey, reminding us that we have never completely arrived. 
Faith is a day-by-day decision to put our trust in God. I don't know who you would identify if I were to ask you, so who is your favorite person of faith in Scripture? Uh, We've actually got an entire chapter in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 11, that tells us story after story of men and women of faith in the Old Testament, beginning with Abel and including folks like Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab. Folks who, as chapter 12 in Hebrews will tell us, folks who surround us like a cloud of witnesses, encouraging us in our journey of faith. Just like we've often talked about the fact that we've known other people in our own lifetimes who, because of their faith, surround us, encourage us in our journey of faith as well. But in these stories in chapter 11 of Hebrews, at first blush, and again, please hear me carefully, at first blush, we might assume that all of these characters had it all together, that they never struggled in their journey of faith, that they never had doubts, that they never had fears. But if you look at their stories, I think you'll discover so many pieces in their stories where they grappled with their faith, where they wrestled with, struggled with their faith, just like if we're honest, where we struggle with our faith. And so let me use Abraham as an example for just a few moments. Abraham, whom we know as the father of the faithful. Abraham, whom we are invited to follow in our faith. Abraham, to whom the promises of God were given. Abraham and Sarah, who were already older and without children, when God initially made the promise to Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation and that ultimately through his descendants, all peoples, including us, would be blessed. We know that that promise points to the Messiah, this this unsettling Messiah, the promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus And so we as followers of Jesus are often identified in the New Testament as children of Abraham. Abraham, father of the faithful. And if I were to ask you to tell me a story that captures the faith of Abraham, you might well tell me the story of Abraham and his son Isaac recorded in Genesis 22, this incredible story of faith. We don't know exactly how old Isaac was when this story takes place. I would assume maybe early teenage years. But it's that moment where God tells Abraham to take Isaac, the child of promise, and to offer him as a sacrifice. And while Abraham may have had his questions, there is no indication in the text at all that Abraham wavered at all. In fact, when he and Isaac and the servant who traveled with them, when they reached the mountain where the sacrifice is to take place, Abraham turns to the servant and tells him to wait. And almost literally in the Hebrew text says, the boy and I will go and sacrifice and the boy and I will return. As Hebrews 11 puts it, Abraham's faith was so strong that he believed the God who gave him this boy in the first place could raise him from the dead. 
And you may read that story just like I read that story, knowing that we're called to be people of faith, knowing that we're called to have the kind of faith that Abraham had. We may read that story and conclude there is no way that I can have that kind of faith. How in the world can I identify with someone like Abraham? But I want to remind you that's only one piece of Abraham's story. Because as you read the entire story in the book of Genesis, you discover that faith was a journey for Abraham, filled with all sorts of bumps in the road. In fact, as you read the entire story in Genesis, you might wonder, is this guy really the father of the faithful? For example, do you remember that moment when Abraham, in fear of his life, lied about his wife, Sarah? In fact, he does it on two occasions, Genesis 12 and then again in Genesis 20. Rather than acknowledging that Sarah was his wife, she said, he said, she is my sister, fearful for his life. Surely a person of faith would never, ever struggle with fear, right? Do you remember the moment in Genesis 15? years after the promise has been made, where Abraham is ready to take things into his own hands regarding the promises of God. God, you made a promise, but God, it's been years, and we still have no children. What if my servant becomes the heir of the promise? Surely, a person of faith would never take things into his or her hands, right? might hit the pause button and suggest there is a long sermon where we could talk about the ways that we take the promises of God and we work it out in our own ways rather than trusting God. Do you remember the moment in Genesis 16 where Sarah, the wife of Abraham, suggests that Abraham sleep with her servant girl Hagar and have a child with her? Again, Abraham, it's been years since God made the promise, and we still have no children. Maybe this is the route to go. Abraham, why don't you sleep with Hagar? And believe it or not, Hagar and Abraham do sleep together. Grab hold of that. How many husbands in this audience would say yes to that kind of proposition? Now, I know we're talking about the ancient Near Eastern world, but Abraham does. What husband in his right mind does that? Surely a person of faith would never do such a thing, right? And then in Genesis 17 and 18, both Abraham and Sarah laugh at the promise of God that is spoken again, that within a year they will have a son. They both laugh at the promise of God. Surely a person of faith would never doubt the promises of God, would never laugh at the promises of God, right? And yet Abraham does all of the above, this father of the faithful. Hear me carefully, I don't share those moments to justify the behavior of Abraham, but I do share those moments to remind us that faith is indeed a journey. In fact, maybe I could summarize 
uh, summarize faith in this way, mentioning some of the things that faith is not, at least in my judgment. For example, faith is not a feeling, even though there may be a variety of feelings that are a part of our faith, a part of our trust in God. But faith itself is not a feeling. Faith is not necessarily feeling good, feeling religious. In fact, when I think about other aspects of life, I think about love and I think about the way that our world often defines love often in a very mushy sort of way. And so love is a feeling you get when you get a feeling that you've never felt before. Granted, there are lots of good feelings that are associated with love, but love itself is not a feeling. Love is more than that. It is a choice. It is a decision. And I would suggest as well that faith is more than just a feeling. Likewise, faith is not knowledge. Even though knowledge is important, and even though we want to grow in our knowledge and in our understanding. In fact, we've got texts like Romans 10 that remind us that our faith grows as we read, as we study, as we hear the Word of God. But faith itself is not equal to knowledge. In fact, I'll be bold enough to say that faith is not knowing all of the right answers to all of the questions. There's a place for things like Christian evidences, but I don't want a faith that is going to be blown out of the water every time another question is posed. Even beyond that, going back to the illustration of love for a moment, when Paul describes love in 1 Corinthians, he warns those believers that knowledge can lead one to being puffed up, can lead one to being arrogant, as if to say love and knowledge are not the same, just like faith is more than knowledge. Likewise, faith is not performance. Yes, faith calls us to action. Faith calls us to holy living. But if we purely equate faith with performance, then we may leave the impression that we've got to be perfect, that we've got to have all of the answers to all the questions, that we've got to have it all together. No, I would suggest faith is more than performance. And one more, and I've saved this one for last. Faith, in my judgment, is not the absence of doubt. If we're honest, even when our faith is strong, there may be moments of doubt. There may be moments where we grapple with all sorts of questions. There may be moments when we struggle with fear. And I think that is exactly where the Father is in this story In Mark chapter 9, Lord, I do believe. But Lord, there are many questions that come along. Lord, there are moments when I struggle with doubts. Lord, there are moments when I've blown it big time, when I struggle with my sins. Lord, I do believe. But please, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Which helps define faith for me. Back to my phrase, faith is a journey. Just like I believe love is a decision, it is a choice I make, I also believe that faith is a decision of the will. Faith is a decision to trust God, to walk with God. In that respect, faith is all about relationship. And you see hints of that all over Hebrews chapter 11. 
And by the way, even though there are both verb and noun forms for this idea of faith in both the Old Testament and New Testament, the emphasis in both the Old and New Testament is on the verbal aspect of faith, the decision we make. And so we choose to trust. We choose to keep on walking. We choose to keep on working on our faith. It is a process. It is a journey. In fact, Old Testament scholar Abraham Heschel says, in almost every place where the Torah, especially those five Uh, first five books in the Old Testament, what we know as the Torah, in almost every place where the Torah talks about someone believing God, and hear him carefully, you can insert the word trusting, that someone is choosing to lean into, to put their trust in God, or he took it even a step further in almost every situation where Scripture talks about someone believing, it is the idea of be-living, It is a journey. It is a process. And so I believe Abraham may have gotten up each morning saying something like this. God, I do believe. Now, God, I know I messed up big time yesterday, but God, I do believe. And so help me in my unbelief. Help me to keep trusting God, I believe that you can do anything, but God, there are moments where I struggle with my fears, my doubts, my questions. And so please, oh God, help me in my moments of unbelief. I think that's what's going on in this story, this text in Mark 9. A reminder that faith is a journey. You see, the important piece is not how much we know, not how perfect our lives may be. The important piece is where our faith is placed. Who do we trust? Now, obviously, we want to grow in our faith, but you see, the power of faith does not rest with us. The power of faith rests with the one that we trust. It is all about relationship. It is all about leaning into God, trusting God again, even in the storms and the doubts and the fears of life. Which is one reason I love Paul's language in 2 Timothy chapter 1 as he describes his ministry and his sufferings and as he talks about the kind of confidence that he's placed in Jesus even in the midst of his sufferings. And so even in suffering, he can live out his faith. He says, that is why I'm suffering as I am. And yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I don't know where you are in your journey of faith today. Maybe you are with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. In many respects, that was an unsettling moment for those disciples, but it was also One of those mountaintop experiences, a clear reminder that Jesus is the Messiah. And so maybe you are with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration today. If so, praise God for those mountaintop moments, those mountaintop experiences. But maybe, maybe you are below with the other nine disciples who are struggling with their faith. Maybe you are below with the Father who believes, but who is struggling with his moments of unbelief. Maybe you are below 
with your questions, your doubts, your fears, your sins. And if that's where you are today, maybe these words from Mark chapter 9 are words that you needed to hear today. As one writer put it, and I love these words, maybe now is the time to acknowledge that faith is not a problem to be solved or a question to be answered, but faith is a mystery to be lived, the mystery of a real relationship with God. And so we lean in, we trust, which is exactly the journey that I'm traveling right now, and maybe you are too. And so, Lord, I do believe, but help me in my moments of unbelief. Let's pray together. God, we praise you for being our God. We praise you, God, for doing the impossible. We praise you for your faithfulness. And we praise you, God, that the power of even our faith is not because we've got it all together or because we've answered all the questions, but because we're leaning into trust in you. And so, God, we confess today, we believe, and we pray you help us in our moments of unbelief. So in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.